Hello and welcome back to Do Theology and Merry Christmas. Christmas Eve is this Sunday. I hope you will be spending some quality time with your local church and some quality time with your family, bringing honor and praise to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what Christmas is all about. In fact, that's what life is all about. So hope that's in your plans. But today, we will not be talking about Christmas. We will be talking about post-millennialism. And there's a lot to be said about post-millennialism. We won't be getting into the details of the system today. We're actually going to be getting into the details of some things that were said by James White, both on YouTube and on Twitter, and uh, responding to some of that. Now, that, of course, will cause us to critique the system a bit, uh, the post-millennial system, but really want to talk about some some stuff other than that, okay? Uh, but before we get into everything, I, I want to say this up front so you can't miss it. Um, I really, really respect James White. I like James White. I, uh, I love him as my Christian brother. I would say that he has been a major blessing to God's church at large in the way that he has uh, provided resources to the church through the gifts that God has given him in writing, in articulating theology, in his debating. Uh, I, I know that our audience won't agree with James White on everything. I mean, it, who agrees with anybody on everything, right? But uh, I know we'll have some disagreements, of course, on the post-millennial issue and theonomy that comes with that issue, uh, perhaps with the five-point Calvinism take that, of course, he holds to. Uh, perhaps some other stuff too, but I tell you, um, he is someone who should be viewed as a blessing to the church. His work on the Trinity, uh, his work on the King James only stuff, um, you know, his books on that, the forgotten Trinity and the King James only controversy, very good books, his work on, um, understanding the transmission of the biblical text and the historicity of the Bible is second to none, really. Uh, to be able to go into a debate with Bart Ehrman and not only hold your own, but do well. <laughs> Who else could really do that? I mean, there are a few, but he is one of the few. Um, I have some very strong disagreements with him on eschatology, but that does not stop me from supporting him. I, I stand with him on the biblicism issue uh, and on, on many other things, in fact. On eschatology, we have some major differences, and they matter, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But uh, I want to say this up front, that he is a blessing to the church. He should be considered as such. That needs to be said from the get-go. And uh, I will not really entertain any other view. I, I don't want any kind of comments, any kind of responses to this being like, oh, James White's an idiot, or he's the worst. No, uh, if you say that, you're an idiot. Okay, there it is. So with that said, um, I do want to get into some comments he made and provide some uh, hopefully brotherly, loving pushback and uh, admonishment in his direction. Okay, with all that said, I'll also throw out there too, um, though he probably doesn't remember me, I have given James White my pulpit for a night. This was last April. He spoke on the historicity of the Bible here at our church. We had dinner together. Uh, so I consider him a very close personal friend, but he probably doesn't remember me. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, so let's get into uh, the issue at hand today. And it starts with an article that was published in Thamilios, which is the Greek word for foundation. It's a theological journal produced by the Gospel Coalition. Yeah, I know, Gospel Coalition, Gospel Coalition. Get all that stuff out of your head, okay? We're not talking about all the problems with the Gospel Coalition today. They're... I will not. I would not say the Gospel Coalition has necessarily been a net positive to the church, and there are many things we can critique there, but not not today. In this theological journal, there was an article published by Jeremy Sexton titled "Postmillennialism: A Biblical Critique." Now, I don't know anything about Jeremy Sexton other than the name Jeremy is fantastic, so I like that. He, uh, and I shouldn't say I don't know anything because it does say uh, at the top of the article here that he is the pastor of or a pastor of Christ the King Church in Springfield, Missouri. I'm from Missouri, so we got two things going for Mr. Sexton. He's got a great first name, and uh, he's in Missouri, God's country. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm from Sedalia, Missouri, which, interestingly enough, I mean, how weird is this? The, the video clips I'm about to show you from James White were recorded in Sedalia, Missouri. Out of all the places he could have been in the world, well, I shouldn't say in the world since he doesn't fly anymore. Out of all the places he could have been in America or Canada or Mexico, he was in Sedalia, Missouri, my hometown, a town of twenty to 30,000 people. I don't know how big it is now. I've been out of there for, well, almost 15 years. Uh, he was there. Really crazy. I told him to get lunch at Mighty Melt. I don't know if he did. Mighty Melt, soup and spud shop. They make great sandwiches. All right. Get back on track. Focus, Jeremy. Focus. All right. Well, the topic of the article, like I said, is a biblical critique of postmillennialism. That's what Mr. Sexton was diving into. And uh, the structure of the article, if I could be really loose with it or be very much like a 100,000-foot view, is he provides some exegetical critiques, and then he gets into some moral concerns, basically, that he has. And in his exegetical critiques, he brings up some very good points. This was uh, retweeted by Scott Aniol, which we'll, I think we'll hear Dr. White reference Scott Aniol, just as Scott in one of the clips here later. Uh, but it was retweeted by him, who was in support of the article. Dr. Peter Gaiman of the Bible Sojourner podcast retweeted it. Uh, that's where I heard about this article originally was through him. And, uh, and the exegetical points that are brought up in the article are very much worth considering. He gets into the details of key passages that post-millennialists use to hold up their eschatology. For instance, the Great Commission. Post-millennialists take a different view of the Great Commission than you've probably heard all of your life. The, the majority of us, the vast, vast majority of us understand the Great Commission to be that disciples of Jesus are to go out and make more disciples of Jesus, individual people out of the nations of the earth, regardless of what national background they have or ethnicity, tribe, tongue, etc. And they are to make these disciples by teaching them all that Jesus had taught and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, postmillennialists view the Great Commission as not teaching and baptizing individuals out of nations, but nations themselves, particularly at the top, by causing governments, by being used of God to uh, cause governments, I should say, to become Christian and to declare Christianity as uh, the national position. 
that I've heard Doug Wilson talk about. Uh, it should be added to America's Constitution, uh, Jesus's resurrection. Uh, that that's something that we recognize as a fact as a as a nation, and that the law of God, the law of Moses, would be the law of the land in this Christian nation. So, so many things I want to say to that, uh, but just honing in on the Great Commission passage, Matthew twenty-eight, the end of Matthew's Gospel. Mr. Sexton does a great job talking about, uh, from the original language, Greek, how this that should not be considered teaching and baptizing nations as a whole, but individuals from the nations. He gets into 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about Jesus is going to return, and he's going to uh, hand the kingdom over to the Father, and then you have like this reigning and uh, enemies being a footstool for his feet, all that stuff going on, and, and the timing of all that. He gets into the details there and does a very good job, makes a solid case that post-millennialists cannot be correct in their view that this is something that happens gradually, that all of Christ's enemies become a footstool for his feet gradually over time leading up to the second coming, but instead that all of that will happen at the second coming. Those are two different ways of looking at that passage, two very different ways of looking at that passage. And he's saying, look, Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 15, that's going to happen at his return. It's not something that leads up to his return. It happens at his return. He makes a good case. And to me, the most striking passage uh, that was expounded upon by Mr. Sexton is Revelation 19, the second coming passage, where Jesus comes on the, the white horse. He is the sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are a flame of fire, and he destroys all his enemies. And particularly, he destroys those kings of the nations who have rebelled against him. It happens instantly, it happens comprehensively, and it happens when he comes on the white horse. Well, for the post-millennial worldview that says his enemies are going to gradually be put under his feet leading up to his coming, that means when he comes, he wouldn't have these kings of nations to strike down because he's coming back to a Christianized world. That's the view of post-millennialism, that the world gets better and better in the sense that it gets more and more Christian. And the world becomes Christianized over the course of a long period of time. And Jesus then inherits his kingdom that's been established on the face of the earth already. Therefore, this passage that Sure sounds like when Jesus comes back, he's going to be destroying enemies. Well, it, it can't mean that. So post-millennials have to change that. They have to say, well, okay, uh, this happened in 70 AD. It happened with uh, you know, the fall of Jerusalem. AD 70, 70 AD, however you want to say it. That, of course, is the magic wand in many <laughs> eschatological conversations, this, uh, this 70 AD event. Well, anyway, um, like Doug Wilson, for example, takes that view that it's talking about uh, Jesus coming back in judgment to Jerusalem. Now, of course, Doug Wilson is not a, a full preterist, so he says Jesus is coming back again. Okay, so he's not denying that. But he came to Jerusalem in the year 70 and fulfilled Revelation 19 then. Well, Mr. Sexton brings up in the article, well, what about... The fact that it says the kings of the nations and that John is using language that we see in the Psalms, like Psalm 2, where it talks about the kings of the earth. They're going to have to answer to the sun. And it's not just the leaders in Jerusalem. It's like a comprehensive worldwide judgment that's happening. 
where Jesus is going to make it very explicit. He is king of all kings and lord of all lords. It's not just a Jerusalem issue. Well, that's a very important thing that needs to be addressed. He also talks about uh, another way that, that postmillennialists get around this in Revelation 19. Like David Chilton, I think his name's David, Chilton anyway, uh, he takes the view that Revelation 19, of course, is allegorical. That's another magic wand that gets used by many Reformed folks when it comes to eschatology, that uh, it's allegorical. And it's talking about Jesus's work in our hearts, Jesus's work in the world as he builds his church and evangelism uh, takes off and spreads. And it's a spiritual passage about the present age or at least from the incarnation of Jesus to now. And it's not uh, supposed to be about the eschatological second coming as we look at it today. It's not talking about last days uh, at all. And, and postmillennialists have to conclude that. It's not talking about last days because, again, Jesus is supposed to be coming back to inherit a Christian world. And in Revelation 19, he's not. So... Um, those are some very interesting exegetical points that are made on multiple New Testament passages throughout this article. And then at the end, like I said, he, he offers some moral concerns that he has that, uh, that postmillennialism is breeding a very fleshly effort, a very, a worldly political effort to essentially force Christianity on societies, creating a, a not real Christianity, but a nominal Christianity, one that's one that's just name only, but doesn't have the power of the Spirit of God. That's his moral concern. And he even mentions, uh, you know, Doug Wilson several times throughout the article, but he mentions Fight, Laugh, Feast, which is the media network produced by the, I think it was originated by the cross-politic guys, Toby Sumter and Gabriel Wrench and Chocolate Knox. Uh, it's, it's their network that is post-mill, based and talking about how, um, well, they just talk about a lot of post-mill things, all the podcasts on that Fight, Laugh, Feast network. He even mentions them by name. So he's not holding back exactly who he's critiquing. He's basically critiquing the Moscow, Idaho post-millennialism, of which James White is a part. Now, he doesn't reference James White in this article. He could have, but he didn't. And uh, James White responds to the article, and um, I want you to hear where he goes initially with this, because I was surprised with what, what he did. He, he took, in a recent episode, he took um, 15 minutes, a little over 15 minutes, I think, to talk about this article and, and listen to what he has to say at, at first as it concerns the exegesis that Sexton brings up and, and critiques um, Listen to how James White responds. This is about two minutes, this clip I'm about to show you. And I am playing at 1.25 speed. So adjust your expectations accordingly. But let's listen here for a couple of minutes. And the uh, abstract basically says, uh, in the following decades, many in Rush Dooney's train added innovative biblical arguments whose interpretive methods do not withstand scrutiny. This article examines the hermeneutical idiosyncrasies and exegetical fallacies displayed in defenses of postmillennialism by Greg Bonson, Kenneth Gentry, David Chilton, Keith Matheson, Douglas Wilson, and others. Postmillennialists routinely keep textual details out of focus or interpret them tendentiously in service of the belief that the prophecies of worldwide righteousness and shalom will reach fulfillment on earth before rather than at the second coming. 
now, um, uh, along with that opening, uh, then you you have uh, Scott saying, fantastic article demonstrating the exegetical deficiencies of postmillennialism. Now, um, there have been some pretty sharp postmillennialists in the past that knew a fair amount. You know, for example, in reading through the article, uh, he talks about, uh, I think he went after Kenneth Gentry for uh, putting too much weight, he said. I haven't had the time to go check Gentry. It, it takes hours to do this kind of stuff. Um, he, his representation is that Gentry was saying that a particular aorist indicates that this was past tense. Now look, aorist is the simplest form of expression of the Greek verb. It doesn't necessarily mean the past, though it normally is in the past. That's its normal usage, but it's not necessarily in the past. It's the simple statement of the verb. And the argument that the article makes is, well, uh, and this is in the subjunctive, and you know, the idea is postmillennialists know so little about Greek, they don't know the time element primarily drops out in the subjunctive. And of course, I learned that in first year Greek, and then it was emphasized in second year Greek. Um, so, you know, um, just the attitude was sort of like, um, not useful, uh, from the article's perspective at that point. And it's like, yeah, a lot of us have taught Greek and we know about this stuff. And I just commented that it was actually exegetical stuff that, that brought me to the position, not, um, ignoring these things or engaging in tendentious, uh, exegesis and stuff like that. Um, but what, what I wanted, what I felt needed to be, uh, addressed um, he quotes from it, um, and I don't know where the quote ends. There's only one opening quote, so it's a little bit... Yeah, we'll, we'll pause there for a moment. So, um, basically, the, the heart of what I wanted to talk about is mentioned there, where he quotes from the abstract. I think he read the whole abstract, word for word, in fact, and then mentioned how he read through the article, which is good. And later in the article, he saw where Mr. Sexton was getting to some Greek grammar stuff and cited Gentry as understanding the Greek wrongly. And what James White says here in this clip that you just heard is that the article had an improper attitude. That's the word he used. Could we perhaps say tone? The article has the wrong tone. Well, we'll stick with attitude, but I think tone is at the heart of it. This is a dangerous game to play, isn't it? And, and isn't this a game that we critique other people for playing? You know, we, we, we get critiqued a lot as conservative Christians for having the wrong tone. And we're usually critiqued by other Christians who are more moderate and say, you know, we are to have... Uh, a more winsome way of, of going about these things. This is a theological journal that's offering a critique that's in the title, a biblical critique. It's getting into not only the Bible, but into the original languages. It's doing exegesis and it's saying, here is what I'm critiquing about the exegesis of my, I say, I could say opponent here. We, we recognize we're all Christians, but but this is what I'm critiquing uh, with this other perspective, from an exegetical perspective. Uh, what's wrong with this? I, I don't understand. I mean, you could read the article yourself. Just search Themelios on Google and postmillennialism, Jeremy Sexton. You'll, you'll find it. I think it reads like a normal theological journal. And to basically dismiss the exegesis because of attitude, that doesn't seem like the James White I know. <laughs> that, that, that seems like a very strange response from 
James White based on his track record. I, I was really surprised by that. And he says in that clip that I just played that exegesis is actually what led him to postmillennialism. So basically, you know, Jeremy Sexton, don't talk down to us. It's exegesis that led us here. So shut up. I don't know if he's saying shut up. Maybe change your tone is what he's wanting to say. I, I'm not sure what, what the solution is for an article like this, how Jeremy Sexton could write something like this with an appropriate attitude from James White's perspective. But he says exegesis got us here. So what you would expect then in this video, in this episode of Alpha and Omega Ministries uh, Dividing Line, what you would expect is that he would engage the exegesis. But he doesn't. He goes on for the next however many minutes, at least 10 minutes, just critiquing the end of the article where Sexton is bringing up his moral concerns, and it becomes a game of philosophy versus philosophy, which is not helpful. Uh, that, that end part of the article is really the application of all the exegesis he had done. And so when he gets to his moral concerns, and I felt like that last part of the article was probably the weakest part of the article, but that's because he is bringing in some subjective observations that he has made, and it's fair for him to do that. He's done the exegetical work, and now he's laying out some other concerns. Uh, but, but to jump to that and now just start critiquing that, to me, is very unfair and it's uh, also just not wise. That, that's not the way we should be examining theological systems, by comparing philosophy to philosophy. And so my encouragement to Dr. White is that he do more public exegesis on these critical passages that either lead us to or lead us farther away from post-millennialism, particularly the, the Greek exegesis of Revelation 19. If he did a full dividing line episode on that, I think that would be absolutely fascinating. I would be first in line to watch that one. And uh, I wouldn't even speed it up. I would watch it on normal speed and want to hear how he handles that passage. Uh, but basically he dismisses the exegetical arguments in the article because of the attitude. And that is not something I'm used to hearing from James White. I'm used to James White confronting things head on and I would, I would like to see him do that. So he jumps to the moral concerns and uh, does the philosophy versus philosophy business. And basically what Sexton is saying here at the end of the article is that a national Christendom will lead to nominalism in Christianity, not true conversions, but it will lead to a bunch of people saying that they're Christians, even though they're not. They uh, are Christians in the sense that they are Americans, and if America is a Christian nation, then by virtue of that, they're also Christian. Um, he's concerned of something like that. He's also concerned that such a an establishment of Christendom is just going to be done through fleshly means. And he even, again, when he mentions the Fight, Laugh, Feast network, which he makes explicit in a footnote in the article, uh, he's basically saying it's already happening, that there's a lot of fleshly stuff going on, a lot of worldly approaches to all of this that aren't as helpful. And so, uh, I want to play one part of James White's response to that, those moral concerns there at the end of the article. And so uh, we're going to just jump into this. I mean, you can 
find this episode and, and watch it uh, on his channel in full if you'd like, of course. But we're going to watch about three and a half minutes here, or listen to three and a half minutes here of James White responding to some of those moral concerns. And then I've got a response to that as well. Number two, the nominal Christianity that North expects to develop worldwide during the interadvental period. Now, this would definitely mean this is a direct quote. Um, and I have one of, the, one of the primary things that I raised with Doug Wilson was this idea of nominalism and mere Christianity. Um, and what that's supposed to mean and what I don't believe it can possibly mean if it's going to be anything that's going to be glorifying to God. Um, but again, why, why my understanding, the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, Psalm 2, Psalm 1, cannot, cannot be found in some massive explosion of nominalism. Just a bunch of people calling themselves Christians, even though they have no sense of the Lordship of Christ or obedience to him or anything along those lines. That, that nominalism can't do that. So, um, yeah, no. Uh, the first of these, some form of which has become integral to the task of disciple-making for, for many post-millennialists, at least says many, logically paves the way for the second cultural engagement, political resistance, and social activism that are deficient in humility, patience, and cruciform piety, and that rely on human ingenuity more so than the work of God's spirit. Well, so it's a it's specifically a part of the post-millennial system that God's spirit is not involved in? Obviously not. Um, any eschatology that's deficient in humility, patience, and cruciform piety, whatever that's being defined as, um, is going to fail. Uh these have been perennial lures for believers, particularly for those living in spiritually declining societies. Okay, there are a lot of temptations in uh, spiritually declining societies. Um, but it doesn't seem to me like the major temptation is post-millennialism. It seems to me it's escapism. I mean, isn't that what we've been doing pretty much big time for decades? Is, eh, here it comes. You know, I mean, my own dad died absolutely convinced that Christ was going to return prior to the time he would die. And he was disappointed in that. Um, but it was, that was a part of the system. That really, really was. And I was raised with that. I mean, every time you'd see some, you know, major, uh, what was the sun-kissed orange juice thing with the sun-kissed lady and the homosexuals and uh, Anita Bryant, all that stuff. Us, uh, getting as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's it's over with, you know? And and uh, the the idea wasn't, so we need to be building more schools and, and, and investing in our great-grandchildren. That's not what it resulted in. In fact, which eschatological system, specifically as a part of the system, says to you, invest in the future. Invest in laying the foundations. Invest in your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. In which one is that something you have to explain why you'd have to do that? And in which one of that is just the natural? I think that's pretty obvious to me. All right. So, um, basically, <laughs> what what is happening here is Jeremy Sexton in the article is saying um, nominalism will be produced through postmillennialism because they're going to make everyone and everything Christian, and in so doing, they're making actually no one Christian. James White's response is, um, actually, that's not the temptation that is most prevalent today that people would become nominalists. What's most prevalent is that people become Christians and then they just want to escape. They, they take the name Christian and then instead of 
shaping the culture, influencing the culture, putting their faith to work. They are just wanting to escape and get out of here, and they're waiting for the rapture, the, the pre-trib rapture. The left-behind culture is really the problem. So he's not addressing really the issue. He's just saying that issue isn't as big as this other issue, therefore let's focus on the other one. Well, um, you know, escapism is a problem, and it exists in all camps, really. Uh, we can we can look in all camps and say that there's a level of escapism going on here or there. Now, it's no secret that, as I just mentioned, left behind, it's no secret that dispensational premillennialism lends itself to escapism because there's this belief within dispensationalism based on certain biblical texts that the church will be raptured from the earth, taken from the earth before the time of great tribulation. Now, because of that, some people have taken that doctrine and started basically just waiting for the rapture and nothing else. They've neglected certain duties that they have, and they look around at the world and say, oh, it's going to hell in a handbasket, get me out of here. And that's essentially what James White was critiquing about his own father there. I don't know what his father would say about the attitude or tone of that critique, which I think is a fair point to bring up since he was critiquing this theological journal's attitude. But uh, it sounds like I would be in hearty agreement with his dad on many things. (laughs) And, um, but I would agree with James White for sure that escapism, bad, needs to be rebuked, okay? And and we actually have an episode on that. We are dispensational premillennialists, Ken and I are, and we recorded at an IFCA national convention here a year and a half ago. Uh, live, we recorded a an episode on escapism, and I think it's just titled Against Escapism, so you can check that out. With that said, it's not like all dispensationalists or all premillennialists or all non-postmillennialists are escapists. That that's, that's just not true, and to say that that is the biggest problem right now, therefore we need to focus on that to the exclusion of the postmill problems, I don't think that's true. There are many people I know, at least in the IFCA, an organization I'm a part of, there are many men who are building amazing things for the kingdom. They are being used by God in the church to do some absolutely incredible things. And uh, there's growth happening in a lot of our churches. And so we're, I I was just on a a pastor's meeting yesterday where a couple of us, um, out of the two out of the four, who of us who are meeting together for prayer are dealing with building expansions. Um, and one may have to, because they've been growing so much that doesn't happen by having an escapist view. So you, you can't paint with the broad brush, either direction here, right? However, you can point out and say, okay, this is a problem going on in this movement and it needs to be addressed. And I own in the dispensational movement, uh, in particular, escapism can be a problem and needs to be addressed. But that doesn't mean we neglect <laughs> the problems within the post-mill camp, which, again, one of these legitimate concerns that Sexton brings up is creating a nominal Christianity. How is that not the inevitable conclusion? Uh, well, that needs to be discussed. And so I, I'm not I'm not here saying... Here's an airtight argument one way or another. I'm just saying it needs to be discussed. You can't just brush it off and ignore it. And uh, 
the role of imminency really plays into this too. I, I think this is a really important point to make, and this is going to send us over to Twitter here in just a moment. But the role that the imminent return of Christ plays in all of this is rather huge. Because you have to remember uh, that post-millennialists cannot say that Jesus is coming back today or tomorrow or even next week. They can't. Post-millennialists have to say that it's extremely likely that we are in the early church still. And uh, James White has said that, Doug Wilson has said that, Jeff Durbin has said that, that many of these guys have said that. Now, you consider amongst yourself here, uh, consider this. What is more likely to produce an apathetic Christianity? The Christianity that says the master is returning at any moment? Or the Christianity that says the master won't be back for a very long time? Now, I say the Christianity that says and the Christianity that says. They're both Christianity. I'm not excluding all post-mill brothers. There perhaps are some who are not believers, just like there are some in every camp who may not be believers. I didn't mean to phrase it like that, okay? But the perspective that says we are servants and our master is coming at any moment, or the perspective that says we are servants and our master will not return for a very, very long time. Which one is going to be more likely to produce an apathetic response from the servants? Well, it's clearly the latter. It's clearly the one that says he's not coming back for a long time. And this is how this is how Jesus talked about these things in the Gospels, that we are to be ready. It says uh, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, as it quotes Jesus there, as Mark is quoting Jesus, probably quoting Peter quoting Jesus, Mark chapter 13, three times in a, a short section toward the end of the chapter, Jesus says, be alert, be alert, be alert. And he's saying be alert in reference to his coming. Now, of course, there will be some people who, again, wave the magic wand of 70 AD over that and say that's all he was talking about. But no, that's not all he was talking about. He's talking about his parousia, his second coming, his return. We are to be alert for our master to come back. And that then gives us this sense of urgency if we truly believe it. Now, I think, again, going back to the critiques of my own camp— I don't think we talk this way enough because we should be highly motivated by the return of Jesus Christ, extremely motivated by the return of Jesus Christ, even more so than death, because there will be people who are alive when Jesus returns. So even more certain than death is his return. And so we should be highly motivated by that. And it plays a role in this conversation when it comes to escapism or apathy or nominalism or whatever. And so to highlight that and to illustrate the point, I want to take us over to Twitter where James White was responding again to some critiques of postmillennialism. Nathaniel Jolly on Twitter, who is often stirring people up on Twitter, <laughs> he stirred some people up as he was talking about uh, postmillennialism and critiquing it. Well, James White responds to Nathaniel by saying, I can't stop you from saying these things, but you need to realize, if you would listen, I and most others fully recognize that we may still be in the early church. There it is. We are not promising a soon sweep of the Spirit across the world, changing hearts and therefore cultures. 
The Puritan hope was focused on the future, even the far future. The issue, for me anyway, is the how do we now live question. Do we live as if Christ will only be enthroned at a future point in time, or do we proclaim to the nations that they are under his sovereign rule even now, and hence, if they seek his blessing, this is how they must live? I pray the Lord will move soon, to be sure, but I must live as recognizing that God's timing and mine are not the same thing. So the question is, how do we now live? I think it's a great question. I, I absolutely concur that that is qu- the question. Now, I'm coming at it from the perspective of, do we now live as though Jesus could be coming back today? Should we, should we now live as though Jesus could come back now? Or should we now live as though Jesus won't come back for hmm, 7,000 more years? Which one leads us to getting to work? I think it's a valid philosophical argument. Again, this is apart from exegesis. We're just doing philosophy versus philosophy, but I think it's worth considering. Well, we have some replies to this. Uh, Tom replies, so no last name on here, just Tom. He says, do you realize that saying that we are in the early church is a form of date setting regarding the second coming? No one knows the day or the hour. Saying that we are in the early church is to claim that you know the day and the hour won't be anytime soon. How do you know that? All right. I think that's a valid response. It, I think it should be entertained. I think that question should be welcomed by postmillennials, and they should be able to give an answer. James White says, chuckle, date setting. Wow. Okay. That's the fullness of the reply. I, I, uh, I don't understand why James White is responding this way. Does he, I mean, does he think the attitude was off? Did Tom have a bad attitude about it? Just like Jeremy Sexton did? I don't know. But where's the exegesis here? I want to see the exegesis. Okay, well, Tom replies to that. And he says, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And there's more than one way to set dates on the second coming. You can be very specific saying it's in two months on a Tuesday. Or you can say it's thousands of years from now. Both are errors and both express a confidence about the future that is only possible for God to possess. Very logical. I, I, th- I think it's a very uh, genuine, legitimate response. But uh, Dr. White doesn't respond to that. Instead, uh, Logan Ramsey jumps in. Logan Ramsey says... Sorry, I got to expand these and it refreshes the page. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Logan Ramsey says, Dr. White never claimed to know how far along we are in the timeline. He simply recognizes the possibility we might be in the early church. His whole point, however, is how do we live in this time, which is how all of us should think precisely because we do not know the day or the hour. Yeah, I don't think this really answers the question. Um he simply recognizes the possibility that we might be in the early church. I think it's more than that. I, I, I think it has to be more than that for the post-millennial system. For Revelation uh, to be concluded, basically, uh, when for these last chapters of Revelation to take effect, when the world has become Christianized, we're a long way off, baby. We're a very long way off for all of Christ's enemies to be put under his feet before the second coming. We're a long way off. 
So it's more than just the possibility that we might be in the early church. There's a true belief that Jesus won't come today or tomorrow. Uh, A comment I thought was good down here, Brady Bush jumps in and he says, the point of imminency is that there isn't an early church and a late church, theologically speaking. The urgency and immediacy are always the same because he could actually return at any moment. There isn't a critical mass of church influence that needs to occur first. Very well said. Uh, The early church moniker that we use today is simply chronological. It's not a theological label. It's not a separation of the actual church herself. It's a chronological thing that we can only use because we've lived to this point. I say we have lived. The church has existed to this point. And so as we look back, we can say 2,000 years ago, that's the early church. So it's all the church. It's just a chronological term. And so to say that we are in the early church today is not the same thing as saying that was the early church 2,000 years ago. Saying that was the early church 2,000 years ago is a chronological statement of historical fact. Saying we are in the early church now is a prophecy (laughs) about the return of Jesus. That's the problem with what's being said, and I think that's pretty obvious, and it needs to be addressed. Okay, so um, I, I think what would really be helpful is for there to be some sort of understanding that the early church, the true early church, <laughs> as we can say that, um, they had an understanding that Jesus could come back at any moment. That's very, very clear. The way Paul talked, the way Jesus instructed his disciples, there's there's supposed to be an ongoing urgency on the part of disciples of Jesus Christ with the idea that he could return before our heads hit the pillow tonight. And so as I tweeted recently, live each moment as though Jesus could be coming back in the next 10 minutes, but plan for the future as though he's not coming back for 10 generations. All right. We are to plan that way. We're to be good stewards. Yet when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to some of the most important things in life, we are to have an urgency about us. That's really what shows our faith, isn't it? So we are to have that urgency as they did, which puts us to work. Yet at the same time, we also have a commission in the New Testament. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have the commission to wait for him. I think a a theology of waiting would go a long way in this conversation. In in fact, three times, just in Romans 8, it says that we are eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting. We're waiting for the hope of righteousness. We're waiting for the return of the Son of God. We have this idea of waiting found in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, in Galatians 5, in Philippians chapter 3, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Interestingly, the same verse that says that Jesus rescues his church from the wrath to come. What does that mean? Well, um, as we recognize that, we also wait for him, the Son of God, to be revealed from heaven. Waiting. There's, there needs to be a theological perspective on waiting. So yes, we get to work and we build with urgency. At the same time, we're also recognizing that we're waiting for Jesus to return. 
I don't think post-millennialists like, generally speaking, the idea of waiting for his return, knowing that his return could be at any moment. And as Jesus asks, and this is what, Luke 16, I believe? Maybe Luke 18? I think it's Luke 18. It's in the uh, parable of the persistent widow. I know that. At the end of that parable, Jesus asks, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who are waiting for him, who are expecting his return? We are of the, the light. We are of the day. We are not of the night. We are not of the darkness. We are to be expecting his return. That day won't overtake us like a thief. But if we say and believe we're in the early church, well, we will be surprised and overtaken. Well, the whole point of all this is encouraging James White to do the exegesis publicly. I don't have any doubt that he's done it privately. Let's get to the exegesis publicly to have substan substantive, substantive, that's the word I was looking for, substantive conversations on eschatology. I'm a, I'm a big believer in studying to show yourself approved in the area of eschatology. And uh, I, I think we need, we need more than what we're getting right now from the post-mill camp. We need more than uh, just philosophy versus philosophy or rallying cry versus rallying cry. We need examining the Word of God side by side, taking two interpretations, putting them against each other, and seeing which one holds more water. That's what we need. And I think Revelation 19 would be a great place to start. Even though it's at the end of the Bible, it is very, very critical to this whole conversation. And uh, to see James White interact with Jeremy Sexton's exegesis of Revelation 19 and his critique of the post-mill view, I would love to see it. I would love to see it and maybe even do another episode in response to that. Uh, maybe even just thanking him for doing it. I don't know. But that's what I got for you today. I uh, hope that's been helpful digging into some post-mill stuff uh, and no idea if James White would hear this or not, but he should know I love him, respect him, appreciate him, would never want to debate him. And I hope that uh, he's encouraged to do some public exegesis on this, that we may all benefit from it. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks for listening, being a part of our audience. God bless you. We'll see you in 2024.